Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. I'm Rebecca Robbins. Damien Garday is off today. It is Thursday, September 10th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll break down the big news of the week, the global pause on AstraZeneca's phase three trials of its COVID-19 vaccine due to a suspected serious adverse reaction in a participant in the UK. Next, our colleague Love Fasher calls in from Washington, D.C. to give us an update on the charged politics of the COVID-19 response. And finally, we'll highlight three top moments from Stat's inaugural Health Tech Summit, which is taking place virtually this week. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. We're going to kick off this podcast with the global shutdown of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials, but I wanted to start the discussion with a bit of inside baseball about how we broke this big story on Tuesday evening. It was a pretty nifty scoop, Rebecca. So tell our listeners about the Slack message that you sent me just before around 11 a.m. in the morning East Coast time on Tuesday. Yeah, so early on Tuesday morning, I received a tip about the AstraZeneca trial being halted. And this is the kind of tip that immediately stands out to you as a reporter as a huge story and, and something that we're going to need all of our resources available at STAT to, to tackle. Uh, so I ran it by my editor and uh, reached out by Slack to Adam to let him know what I'd heard so that we could uh, develop a plan to start reporting it out. That Slack certainly got my attention, Rebecca. You know, you got to love those anonymous tipsters, especially when they turn out to be right. You know, and at that time, we didn't know anything, you know, other than the tip that, that you had received. So, you know, we kind of immediately hit the phones. You know, we started doing our reporting. We corralled the assistance of other stat reporters, and that included the indispensable Helen Branswell. And, you know, over the course of the day, we learned from multiple sources that, yes, in fact, AstraZeneca had suspended the clinical trials of its COVID-19 vaccine, and it was due to a single participant in the UK who had experienced an undisclosed but serious adverse event. And so we started writing out the story. And by late afternoon, Adam had reached out to AstraZeneca to inform them about what we knew and, and what we were planning to publish. And after that, they issued us a statement confirming the story and our reporting. And we published the piece just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. So all in all, it was a very productive six hours. Yeah, it certainly was. It was it was great work. And uh, I guess that's probably enough self-congratulations. But let's get down to like the fallout of, of this suspension of this trial and what it means, because the stakes here are incredibly high. That's right. This uh, vaccine candidate from AstraZeneca and Oxford is a real frontrunner in the race. It's seen as one of the most promising uh, ways to potentially get this pandemic under control. And, and so while there are other candidates in development, this one will likely be slowed down by the safety concern. And it's something that other trials are looking at as well. You know, there's no denying the fact that this is a setback 
for AstraZeneca and Oxford in their efforts to develop this vaccine. You know, at the same time, I think it also underscores the importance of these large clinical trials, you know, that are enrolling tens of thousands of participants that are necessary, you know, to suss out the efficacy and safety of these experimental COVID-19 vaccines. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I think you can say that the system works here because what they've done is identify a potential risk And at this point, what AstraZeneca has said is that, you know, they're investigating the cause of this adverse reaction. Um, It's not known whether the vaccine caused it or whether something else caused it. But, you know, these kinds of things do happen in clinical trials, particularly in vaccine trials. So this is not an uncommon occurrence. And as we later learned, AstraZeneca actually paused the same clinical trials back in July. So as you mentioned, Adam, this story continued to develop. And on Wednesday, the day after we put out our first big story, we learned more about the participant and the clinical trial. Uh, The woman whose condition triggered the shutdown of the trials globally uh, had experienced neurological symptoms consistent with a rare but serious spinal inflammatory disorder called transverse myelitis. Uh, We also learned that the woman's diagnosis has not yet been confirmed, um, but as of Wednesday, she's improving and had a chance of potentially being discharged from the hospital as early as Wednesday. Yeah, and all that information that we've got about this participant came from a conference call that was uh, conducted by AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Sorio, and he did the call. It was a private call with investors organized by the investment bank J.P. Morgan, which in of itself kind of ignited another little controversy and kind of put the company in some hot water because, as we said you know, before, AstraZeneca had said very little about what was going on inside its clinical trial other than the fact that it had been paused. You know, they weren't providing a lot of details about what exactly had happened. And here was the CEO of the company talking to investors on a private call and basically offering them a lot more detail and color about what was going on. And so there were a lot of questions raised at that time about AstraZeneca's commitment to transparency and fairness, you know, whether it was appropriate for the company to disclose this information to investors privately instead of putting out a public statement. And that was very striking to me to see them respond to this big uproar by talking to investors only and not sharing this information publicly. Uh, Is there any precedent for this? How have companies in other situations uh, responded with respect to, to disclosure? I mean, generally, companies are particularly in in today's era where it's so difficult to keep information private, as we all know, that, you know, most companies are pretty good about disclosing things in a fair way. At least here in the United States, there are laws that require companies, publicly traded companies, to disclose information in an equitable fashion. So this was unusual. I think it was something that... You know, if they probably had to do it again, they wouldn't do. But I think it is also sort of striking that, you know, we're now kind of 24 hours after that J.P. Morgan phone call and AstraZeneca still has not made a public statement uh, that sort of mirrors or echoes the things that Sorio said on that private call. So let's talk about what happens next. So right now, AstraZeneca's researchers are conducting a safety investigation. Um, This is something that would involve uh, a data and safety monitoring board. Um, This is a board that monitors the trial uh, for participants' uh, safety. Uh, And that group needs to clear the trials to restart. It's unclear how long this can take. And it's also unclear what effect that might have on slowing down enrollment and and the ultimate readout of the trial. 
you know, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Sorio participated in another sort of media event early this morning, UK time. I listened in on that. He basically reiterated what you said, Rebecca, was that, you know, basically the this participant's case, this adverse event that happened was being investigated. All that information was going to be sent to the Safety Monitoring Committee, and they would make a determination as to whether or not the trial could restart or not. He did not give any sort of timeline for when that happened, although he did say that he still felt like they were on track and that, you know, if everything went according to plan, you know, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine could potentially be on the market by the end of the year. We'll have to wait to see whether that happens or not. And I guess the other question here, Rebecca, is, you know, what impact this is having on the other developers of COVID-19 vaccines? That's right. We reported in our story that other trials uh, and investigators are looking closely at their own data to see if there are similar adverse events uh, that might be linked to uh, these vaccines. So I think this uh, the safety concern is uh, really driving home how challenging vaccine development is and, and uh, how difficult it is to rush it. And I'll just say it lastly is that if you ever get another anonymous tip, Rebecca, just slack me anytime. I will. All right, so let's shift our focus to Washington, D.C., where politics and science are not on the best of terms. Joining us today is Lev Fasher from Stats DC Bureau. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Lev, earlier this week, a group of nine top biopharma players issued a public pledge to only seek regulatory approval for their COVID-19 vaccines when they're proven safe and effective. This was part of an effort to allay the public's concerns about political influence in the COVID-19 vaccine development process. So, Lev, was this pledge really necessary? And do you think it'll have the desired effect? Well, it absolutely seems necessary. Uh, A recent stat poll that we did with the Harris Polling Group showed that 78% of Americans worry the COVID-19 vaccine authorization or approval process is being driven more by politics than by science. And essentially, that's led to two highly related fears. The obvious one that President Trump will push through a vaccine approval prior to his re-election, election day is November 3rd. And then the fallout from that, which is essentially that the political interference, whether it's perceived or real, could kind of create a new camp of vaccine-hesitant people in the United States, which of course is a huge public health threat. So Kamala Harris, the Democratic nominee for vice president, said just the other week that she doesn't trust President Trump and she wouldn't take a COVID-19 vaccine, or at least she'd be very hesitant about taking one that is approved prior to election day. The Trump campaign responded by calling her an anti-vaxxer, which is kind of stunning given that Trump himself has previously tweeted uh, baselessly about you know the, the false link between uh, vaccines and autism. So all of that is to say, yeah, there's absolutely a need to reassure the public. The problem is that you know, does the pharmaceutical industry have the credibility with the public to make an impact here? This is happening amid a vaccine hesitancy that existed long before COVID, b continued fallout from the opioid crisis, which a lot of the public places at the feet of the pharmaceutical industry, and see the years-long debate we've been having over drug pricing and negative public perception toward the pharmaceutical industry that stems from that. So, you know, this is a, a pledge that clearly drug companies 
felt they needed to make and that public health officials have largely applauded them for, but whether it really moves the needle in terms of how Americans view vaccine safety, I personally am kind of skeptical. And is there any sign that Trump is dialing back his talk about an early vaccine approval, you know, in time for the election? If anything, he is accelerating that talk. So when he accepted the Republican presidential nomination two weeks ago, he essentially guaranteed that a vaccine would be available by the end of 2020, which in one sense looks somewhat likely that there would be an emergency use authorization available at least to select high-risk groups by the end of the calendar year. But for him to say it so definitively without acknowledging that things could go wrong, that there's scientific uncertainty, it, it was kind of the boldest thing he said yet. And then he dialed up his rhetoric even further, actually, at a press conference on Monday where he was talking about how a vaccine is coming quickly. And kind of just as a, a troll, it seemed like he said it, it could come before a very special date, an obvious reference to November 3rd's general election. So let's talk a little bit more about public opinion. The Kaiser Family Foundation conducted a new poll that asked Americans about their views of the coronavirus pandemic. And the results were a little depressing. Break them down for us. Yeah, depressing is a good word. So public confidence in the CDC is down among voters registered both as Democrats and Republicans, but especially among Republicans. Whether or not you trust Tony Fauci was kind of already edging toward a partisan thing, but now is just full-blown, you know, party lines. Only 48% of Republicans trust Tony Fauci. It's down about 30% from uh, a Kaiser survey in April. And to me, that's especially remarkable because Tony Fauci hasn't really pushed back on a lot of Trump's misleading claims and more inflammatory statements about COVID in the way that other people in public health have wanted him to. Um, so, you know, he really seems to have made a, a lot of efforts to appease President Trump. He said in a, a news story a couple months ago that you, you don't want to go to war with a president. And despite his, you know, kind of tiptoeing around the, the chaos that is the Trump administration's broader COVID-19 response, um, massive, massive distrust for him among Republicans. So clearly in this country, there's, uh, you know, no single authoritative figure that Americans, regardless of their political beliefs, trust on COVID-19 information. And that is a, a big problem in terms of public health messaging. So before you came on, Lev, we were discussing AstraZeneca and the safety issue that caused a halt to its COVID-19 vaccine clinical trials. Has there been any reaction or comments about this development from the public health folks in D.C.? You know, there hasn't been a ton, but yesterday there was a, a Senate hearing uh, before the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, uh, one of the committees that kind of does the most healthcare work. And they were talking to uh, Surgeon General Jerome Adams and Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health. And Collins was repeatedly asked about the, the pause in the AstraZeneca trial. And essentially what he said and what senators from both parties seemed pretty satisfied with as an answer is just, this is the way it's supposed to work. We're you know, doing these trials for a reason. The fact that there's been such a widely publicized safety concern that led to a, a pause in the trial until the drug company can evaluate what actually happened and whether it's safe to continue testing their vaccine candidate is, I think, exactly what people want to hear. This is how the science works. And, uh, you know, because this happened, because it happened, um, and the, the company was fairly forthright about it and uh, you know, Stat did such extensive reporting on it. 
you know, I, I think that's the kind of thing that is really engendering more trust uh, among lawmakers and hopefully also among the public. Okay, last question for you, Lev. So the famous Watergate journalist Bob Woodward is out with a new book uh, in which he interviewed President Trump extensively on tape. And by law, every D.C. journalist must have a take on this book. So we wanted to get yours, specifically the taped interviews from last winter, where Trump admits to Woodward that the coronavirus is deadly and spreads easily through the air, directly contradicting his public statements at the time. So do we really need a Bob Woodward book to tell us that Trump misled the American people about the coronavirus? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to deliver my uh, legally obligated take. I guess in a couple of ways, you know, it's it's a bit of a distinction without a difference. But I, I do think it matters just in that the kind of, uh, you know, galaxy brain Trump take the last six months or so has been that the president and his administration seem to never have fully internalized the seriousness of COVID and maybe downplayed it because there was a legitimate belief that it was overblown, that it wasn't as big a deal as it was being made out to be, and, you know, that there was no leading scientific or public health figure, you know, a la Tony Fauci, who really had ever gotten through to President Trump and other people in his inner circle. And I think what the Woodward reporting shows is that that's not true. What actually happened is much more nefarious, which is that the the president uh, – seemed to have a pretty profound understanding of exactly how dangerous COVID-19 was, how, uh, you know, mortality was substantially higher than even particularly bad flu strains, how contrary to his repeated public statements, no, young people are not uh, immune to COVID-19. So, you know, whether it would have made a difference in the U.S. response had Woodward published the the audio from these interviews in in February or March when they happened – I don't know. It's pretty head-scratching to me. He sat on it until September because, as I said, I think it really does paint Trump in a different light, not as someone who didn't act because he didn't understand, but actually as someone who understood exactly how bad things were and and despite that intentionally chose to to play down what was happening and, and not to act as forcefully as he could have. Lev, thanks again for joining us. Thank you as always for having me. We're going to talk about health tech and a virtual conference that Stat put on this week to explore the promise and pitfalls of technology in medicine. Yeah, Stat's inaugural and, of course, virtual health tech summit featured some fascinating panel discussions with speakers from companies including Google, Fitbit, Lyft, Teladoc, and Livongo. We tuned into the whole thing and wanted to highlight a few of the moments that stood out as the most insightful and memorable. Okay, so the first moment that we want to highlight isn't exactly about health tech. But it was a really good one, and it pertains to the big news of the week, of course, the pause on the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine trial. So in the opening session of the conference, our colleague Helen Branswell moderated a panel discussion with several leading COVID-19 experts. Among them was Sue Desmond Hellman, the former CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who's also a former president at Genentech. Here's what Sue had to say about the AstraZeneca news. It's important to understand that the pause in the trial is as it should be. Um, Literally thousands of people will be exposed to a very new uh, vaccine. 
And so the clinical trials process highly depends on safety monitoring and carefulness on the part of the sponsor, the company, in this case, AstraZeneca. And so I think people should think things are working like they're supposed to. Yeah, I mean, I think Sue, you know, echoes what we, you know, you and I said in our first segment, it echoes what Lev kind of conveyed from some of the health uh, officials in D.C. about the fact that this is kind of how the way science is supposed to work, you know, and hopefully helps to, you know, bolster the trust in the process and in the vaccines, ultimately, you know, if and when they're approved. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think so far things seem to be working as they're supposed to, as you observed. But I think the question is whether they will continue to work as they were supposed to. I know many experts have been alarmed by uh, President Trump's efforts to try to bring about an October surprise in the form of some sort of uh, vaccine authorization or tentative approval. And so I think the question is whether we continue to see uh, science win out as it ought to. Okay, the next moment we want to highlight came during, uh, Rebecca, your interview with Mintu Tarakia, the executive director of Stanford Center for Digital Health, uh, which is trying to chart out the future of health tech. Uh, Rebecca, you asked him about the concern that he's voiced about the lack of large-scale randomized clinical trials in his field. Here's what he had to say. The interesting issue now is that if you look at the valuations of a pharmaceutical company, it's tied to the randomized trial data, it's tied to the evidence. But if you look at the valuations of the tech companies, it's tied really to projections of revenue, which in my opinion are often not grounded in reality with respect to adoption of clinical evidence. Yeah, so I think Mintu makes a really good observation there. Uh, Another thing we talked about is sort of the question of what the trials uh, in digital health are being designed to actually measure. A lot of them, Mintu pointed out, are measuring things like engagement with an app or kind of short-term measures. And, And those offer some signal, but it's not the same as a trial that is powered to measure clinical outcomes, you know, whether patients live longer, whether they are measures of, of blood pressure, of blood glucose are improved for sustained periods of time. And, and I think that's the kind of thing that the field is lacking and that, that Mintu um, points out is something that ought to be done more broadly. All right. So moving on, we got one more moment we want to highlight. And this came during our colleague Kate Sheridan's interview with several VCs, including Lisa Sunin, an investor who leads the firm Minot's Venture Capital Fund and its digital and technology businesses. To give you some context here, Kate asked the panelists about the many, many health tech companies that have pitched a pivot to COVID-19. Here's what Lisa had to say on that topic. Feels like every business plan they crossed out AI and wrote in COVID or something, you know. Well, Lisa is always available to offer a great quote, and this was no exception. Um, There's been so many companies that have pitched me in recent months um, using COVID as more of a buzzword than a core competency. And, And I think in some cases, it really has replaced or doubled up with AI as kind of the buzzword of of the moment. I think the real differentiator is is whether companies actually have expertise in vaccines or in testing um, that they can meet this moment with. And and I think what we've seen so far, especially given the sad state of the response, is that very few of them actually uh, have had a lot to offer. And I could say that uh, this pivot to COVID is not confined only to health tech, Rebecca. I'm certainly seeing a lot on the biotech side as well. 
And if you are interested in stats events, uh, we're putting on a big summit. Uh, this one's beyond health tech. This involves all areas of, of health and medicine in November. Uh, so check stats website uh, for information about how you can virtually attend our next one. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests we should invite on the show in the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.